All right, Romans 9, turn there, verse 1. Okay, Romans 9, verse 1. Andrew and Emily are going to come around with Bibles. So if you don't have a Bible on you today and you need one, uh, raise your hand. Don't be shy. Everyone could use a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, it's our free gift to you. Just take this home with you and read it. Please enjoy it, love it, share it. Okay? Romans 9, verse 1. Now, as you're going, let me give kind of a huge intro and recap. In fact, much of what today is, is an introduction and a prep for really the next two to three months, okay? Uh, And so it's somewhat unfortunate that like 120 of our students are also gone on spring break and some families and stuff because today really sets the foundation and trajectory for the next two to three months. Paul's, uh, what Paul communicates in the first five verses of chapter nine, give us what our heart should look like in the pursuit of the depths to which he talks about in nine, 10, and 11. And so today's going to be a lot of prep, not a lot of new things in regards to that, but a lot of preparing us for what he'd have next. Now, as we close out chapter 8, I was thinking about this. Chapter 8 is easily one of the most beloved, celebrated, and shared texts in all of Scripture, right? We talked about this. Like, you'll find it on pillows worldwide, okay? There's chapter 8, 28, 8, 1, all that. It's just over and over. We love chapter 8, but here's the truth. Chapter 9 could not be more the opposite, right? Chapter 9 is often the most feared, debated and even skipped over texts in all of scripture. That we love and we celebrate eight, but then we get to nine and say, you know what, I'm just gonna go to 12. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm just gonna jump over nine, seven, because there's a lot of debate in the midst of these verses, and so I don't wanna deal with them, I don't wanna go after them, and I don't want people to not like me, and so we're gonna go to chapter 12, where we talk about a lot of love and some great things. In fact, uh, I was talking to a guy about this, uh, Mike Hardwick, who goes here. Like, you guys know Mike. Him and I were talking at our redemption community this last week, and he's like, man, I tell you, the first time I read chapter 9, I threw my Bible across the room, right? So this, this, this is kind of what can be elicited on a plain reading of chapter 9, that there's some intense depth. There is some stuff that's going to cause kind of on a real heart level some pushback, okay? And, and I want to say to us up front, that's okay, In fact, if you read chapter 9 and you haven't really read it much or studied much of it before and you don't have a pushback, you might not have a soul, okay? Like, you might might not have a mind that says, this doesn't seem right to what I think I know. But we're going to drop, we're going to jump into it we're going to break it down and we're going to see what God has for us. Now, in the midst of this, uh, a few points. One, there's going to be some major doctrine discussed over the next two to three months, especially over the next three weeks. Things like predestination and election, everyone's favorite topic, right? Uh, sovereignty of God, the church's identity and mission, okay? Um, oh, and an introduction to Israel's eschatology, which we're all excited about, right? In other words, what does God do with Israel? In, in the midst of all this equation, in the midst of all of these truths, what's happening with Israel? What's happening with God's chosen people? Now, a word or two about theology, Some people make theology more important than it is. Okay, let me be clear. Some people make it more important than it is. In other words, oftentimes I know many people who make theology or make their faith in their relationship with God merely a mental assent to God. In other words, man, I know a a bunch of stuff about him, so therefore I'm in, right? 
I, I, I can go ahead and I, I, I can parse the Greek and I can tell you every major theological doctrine that moves towards why I'm saved. But they don't know God whatsoever. So I, I just thought about this this week. If I, this is my wife Verity right here, beautiful. And um, if Verity comes to me and says, and, and I know everything there is to know about her. I know a bunch about who she is, what she does, what she believes. If I know everything about her and she comes to me and says, hey, it's Friday night. Let's, let's go on a date. And I say, you're South African. That's not helpful, right? If I just, you guys missed that one. She's South African knowledge, no? Okay, it's, it's warm up a bit, people. If we just, and this is, because here's the truth, this is what we do with God. God wants more than just you to know about him, right? God wants relationship. God wants engagement. God wants all of you all the time. And so oftentimes then we say, okay, God's calling us to be more engaged with himself. And then we stand back and then just talk a lot about what we know about him, right? We say, well, God, we know that you're sovereign. And then we just, okay, that's enough. And we don't get too involved in what that is. So sometimes we can make theology more important than it is. But on the other hand, there are a lot of times we, we can make theology far less important than it really is as well. And so this is, this is actually, I would say, even uh, a bigger issue within the church today. We don't want to delve into hard issues. We want to delve into these topics. We'd rather just make it, listen, God loves me. It's good. He wants to hang out. I'm going to do it. But I don't need to know anything about him. I just need to know that, okay, Jesus died on the cross for my sins or something like that. He rose on the third day. And so then I'm in and I'm good. I don't need to study anymore. I don't need to learn anymore. I don't need to open, open up my Bible anymore. This is also not healthy or helpful for the church. When it merely just becomes this emotional interaction with God and there's nothing cognitive happening, there's no learning about God's character. So this would be, in the, in the same illustration with Verity, if I knew absolutely nothing about her, how would I love her well? Right? Every friendship, every relationship that you have, you base your response and how you act based on what you know about that person. Right? So, so I know things about Verity no one else knows, and so this way I can engage and act upon those. And so the same thing goes with God. The more we learn about him, the more we learn about his character, his goodness, his faithfulness, the more we learn these things, the better we can engage and act upon who he is rather than maybe who we want him to be. Make sense? Okay. So, um, John Frame, uh, this is kind of our operating definition of theology at Redemption Church. John Frame, uh, brilliant theologian, said this, the theology is the application of all of God's word to all of life. So oftentimes what we can do with theology is make it just merely about knowing, but, but what Frame is saying is, no, like a right theology is taking these truths about God and applying them to every aspect of our lives. And so this is what we hope to accomplish as we get through some of these doctrinal and theological issues. It's not just that you guys would get puffed up and smarter. It's that by learning them, we then apply them to all our areas of our life with hope of glorifying God. Theology is adopting and nurturing a healthy biblical worldview about God and creation. Okay? Theology is about nurturing Okay, a healthy worldview about God and creation. In other words, the way we see the world, the way we see God, theology helps inform that. Now, our culture today would claim to know more about God than they actually do. 
So the Nehemiah Institute, which is a kind of a, uh, a think tank that goes around, they do these surveys, they interview people and say, okay, what do you know about God? Where are you at with your faith? And I just want to read some stats off their most recent uh, survey that they did. They said, based on this criteria, that 4% of Americans view the world through a lens of a biblical worldview. Okay, 4%. So a lot, so about what, like 60% claim, 60 to 70%, depending on what survey you look at, would claim Christianity as their faith. 4% based on this criteria, and it was, it was pretty, it wasn't like you had to know all this stuff and believe, I mean, it was like pretty low bar, 4% of the American population uh, believes that they have a biblical worldview. Now, um, we then think, okay, but like, but us, like the real Christians, we're doing much better, Right? Then when people agree that, okay, they, they check the box for Christian, evangelical Christian, they check, check it for how many times they go to church, and then they get to this next one, and they do the same biblical worldview test, 10%, 10% of people who are claiming Christianity would have a biblical worldview. In other words, that they judge the world by what Scripture says. What we often do, what you often find, is a lot of what happens in our world, or a lot of what we read in the Bible, rather, we judge based on experience, instead of allowing the theology, instead of allowing scripture to shape our experience, if that makes sense. So as we read the Bible, we come across a text that, you know, we're not too sure about. This, this rubs me the wrong way. And so instead of, okay, well, let, me, let me delve into this. What could God be communicating? What's going on here? Instead of doing that, we say, well, this is what I want to be true. This is what my experience has told me. And so then that we put, we eise- it's called eisegesis. We put our beliefs into the scripture as opposed to exegete. In other words, take away what the scripture is really trying to say. Okay, and then allow those truths to shape our experience. I see this all the time. A couple other stats. Um, 38% of Americans uh, believe that the whole Bible was written after Christ's death. Okay, so even the Old Testament, that all of that was written after Jesus' death. That's, for any of you in the book, that's not true. Okay, uh, 49% believe that money is the root of all evil. How many people believe that? Money is the root of all evil. Oh, good. I'm already lying. Okay, uh, money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Okay, and that's, that's biblical. Last one, this one, I found uh, very surprising. And I was, I was kind of, I shared it with Verity last night and she was like, well, I could see why. I was like, no, there's no, there's no way to this. But 12% think that Joan of Arc is Noah's wife, okay? <laughs> That's real, right? That in other words, Noah had a last name and his last name was Ark. And then Joan had a middle and last name. Her middle name was of and last name Ark, right? They're not even spelled the same. But 12% of the American population would say, yeah, you know what, Joan of Arc? Oh, yeah, Noah's wife, of course. They built the boat together. Yeah. Also, if that was you and you did that, I'm sorry, but you're wrong, okay? So this, this is the culture. This is the air we breathe. That, that you don't walk out of this door. You're not raised in this culture that is m- moving you and ushering towards, listen, look at scripture and then allow that to be the lens with which you see the world. Rather, it's allow the world to be your lens of scripture. So everything you know, everything you see, everything you touch, et cetera, it's everything you hear, students, everything your teacher's telling you, let that be the, the, be the lens, the glasses with which how you read the Bible. 
what Paul is urging us through much of this, and what I want to urge for us as we move through these next two or three months, especially over the next few weeks, is that we would believe God to be God and the Bible to be the Bible, the inherent, inerrant word of God. And so that we can trust it to inform every aspect of life and not the other way around. Okay, um, major themes from chapter 8 that have to carry over as we go through the next few weeks and the next few months. Okay, major themes. One um, is, is, is God's sovereignty, right? And, and here's, here's the truth. We're going to get to some stuff in chapter 9 and 10, 11, especially 9, where you're going to be frustrated with God's sovereignty when in chapter 8 you were celebrating it. Like we're going to read some stuff in chapter 9 that you're going to look back at 8 and say, why did I ever think I was happy about this? But hopefully we can get underneath that and see, no, God's sovereignty is truly good. He is the author of all, and it is good. Second thing we have to know is um, God's goodness, right? That he's completely sovereign, he's author of all, he's over everything, but that in the midst of that, he is good. Not even in the ways that we understand good, not in the sense of like we do good things. God, God's inherent nature is good, Everything he does is good. Everything he is is good. Without blemish, without brokenness, perfect. So we have a sovereign and good God. Both those things must carry us through to this next chapter. The next one, God's character overall. Right? The God's character has always been the same and never changes. And so it's not that what we read in chapter 9 or in these other chapters was true at one time, but is no longer true now. It's not that, uh, man, what, what we read then, maybe God meant at one time, but he doesn't mean it now. God's character must be exalted in the midst of the way that we interpret Scripture, the way we get into this as a church. That God be lifted up, exalted, and seen as God is very important as we go through this, okay? Now, here's the truth. In the midst of all of this uh, theology and doctrine, in the midst of all these big words, here's the truth about chapter 9 that oftentimes gets left behind. Okay? Chapter 9 often gets preached as this is the, the theological primer for predestination and election. Okay? It gets preached as, okay, man, I, I really want to talk about these topics. And so then Paul decided, hey, I'm going to give a whole chapter to just focusing on these two things. And so that's the way often it's preached. But the context is far greater than Paul just introducing some theological doctrine. What's happening is far bigger than that. See, in chapter 8, blessings given to the church were gift of the, gifts of the, or the gift of the Spirit, adoption of sons and daughters, future glory, sovereign election, and conformity to God's righteousness. All this in chapter 8, we celebrated. Man, this is great that we have all of this. This is really good news. Okay. What's happening, though, is that there are many who would read this letter that are Jews who would interpret all of this as like, but wait a minute. What about us? Like, like what, what, what about us? So, so if chapter 8, right, it just showed over and over and over in the midst of God's spirit coming, these are all the promises of God for the church. And what happens to the Jews who don't believe in Jesus? That, that's, that's the question that Paul knows the Jews will be asking. 
So, so all, they get all of this stuff, but God, we, we, we were your chosen people. You see, in the Old Testament, the Old Te- listen, the entire Old Testament is almost always about God and his work with the people of Israel, with the Jewish people. He chooses them, sets them apart as his people to be a magnifying glass of his image to the world. And so the Jews now would sit here hearing what we've been sharing in chapter 8 and then say, wait a minute, but God, you promised all of that to us. We, we were supposed to be adopted. We were supposed to have future glory. We were supposed to be your people. What happened? And so Paul spends chapters 9, 10, 11, in the midst of getting some deep theological doctrine in there, he's getting into what happens with the people of God. What happens with Israel? Now, some of you might be sitting here and say, well, why should I care? Right? Unless you're in here and you're a Jew, you probably are saying, well, what does this really have to do with me? What does it have to do with my faith? Which is already a selfish question. So if you're saying that, shame on you. But what does this have to do with us? And the answer is everything. Because here's the truth. If God promised all of these things to Israel, okay, and yet doesn't fulfill them, how can we as the church today stand in the promises of God we just celebrated in chapter 8 and believe he'll be faithful with those? Right? If this, if this reading, if you're a Jew there and you're saying, God, you've get, you promised all that stuff to me, but I don't have it. It doesn't look like I'm going to get it. Then the question becomes the same for us. Like, God, wait, I mean, why should we trust you? How do we know that if, if you abandon the promises to Israel, you won't abandon the promises to us? And so this is the context with which Paul breaks it down for us in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Because as we see God's hope and God's movement and God's work sovereignly in the future for Israel, we'll see that his promises are so true and easy for for us to follow and believe. But it takes three chapters to really walk it through. And he needs to delve into some deep theology stuff to get us there. Okay, so here's my hopes as we get into the text finally. My hopes for today and for this chapter and for the next few months. One, that we'd remember God's sovereign and good and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That his character never changes. Two, that we would delve into theological topics for the sake of loving God but not being right. Because I get into a lot, we do those theology pub things, you know, we, we have these discussions and sometimes I'll sit down and have conversations after these theology pubs and people will just want to debate for the sake of being right, not for the sake of loving God and making much of him. So we study the depths of what Paul's saying over the next few months in an effort to know and love God more, not just for the sake of being right. And the last one, will we then celebrate God's faithfulness to his promises, both for us and to Israel, okay? Because they are inherently linked together, okay? So, let's go. Verse 1, 9, 1 through 5, says this. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears with me 
bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Let's just look for a minute at just Paul's demeanor here. He transitions again from eight in this great news. Like we just came off of, man, all, nothing in the world, right, can separate us from God's love. Chapter eight ends with the bang. We're celebrating it's good. And right in the next verse, he says, man, I've got unceasing anguish and sorrow in my heart. Why Paul's uh, severe change in demeanor here? One of the things I do find funny uh, is just that he feels like he has to like prove that he's not lying to them. Right? And this is like always in every, I have conversations with people and I'll say, I'll ask them a question. I mean, how's your life going? And they say, honestly? And I say, how else were you going to tell me? Right? Like, so I was like, no, so honestly, this really, so normally you lie, but now because you've said honestly, you're telling the truth. Right? You often, obviously, so Paul, though, is saying, listen, there's about to come some stuff that you have to believe my heart how I explain it to you. It's just, okay, it's just, it's just like if anyone here has ever been dumped, right? So that person comes up to you like, hey, I just want you to know, like, this, I love you, you're great, you're amazing, it's, there's something wrong with me, but it's not going to work out, right? And so then you know all of that language that leads up to, okay, this is, this is heading towards something that's not great. Not initially, in the, in, in the initial dis- viewing of it, does this seem like good news? And this is the same with how he starts off chapter 9. He's like, listen guys, I'm not lying to you. Okay, I, I'm going to tell you the truth. This is not me trying to deceive. This is not me trying to play an agenda. And by the way, as I tell it to you, listen, here's the truth. My heart is in anguish over these truths. That, that I am fearful. That I don't want to share what I'm about to share because I know in humans' eyes, in the world's eyes, this might get easily construed, okay? And so we see Paul's posture in this, and I, I pray for us again, as we, and again, as we prep and intro the next few months with today, I pray that we have this same heart. Right? I, I pray that we would have the same heart that Paul has here, we would have for truth. Right, that, that even in the midst of it, like, Man, it might be hard to believe. It might be hard to wrap our minds around. But God is good. And this is true. And we'll we'll fight, right, tooth and nail to get to truth. And then we'll rely on God for it. Okay. I pray the heart of Paul for us. Okay. Um, I pray the heart of Paul that regardless of our agreement, that anything we study and anything we learn would only move myself and our entire church towards love. Okay. Because at the end of the day, theology moves us towards the heart of God, moves us towards the heart of Jesus, moves us towards love. Okay. That we should step into these truths and come out the other end seeking to love God and to love other more than we did on the other side, okay? Oftentimes, knowledge, right, can, can have the opposite reaction to love. 
Throughout history, knowledge has been exalted in almost every single culture, right? So for the Greeks, knowledge was virtue. And so the more knowledge you gained, the more virtuous of a person you would be, the better you would uh, handle your brother and care for your family and care for the world. So knowledge was virtue. To the Jews, knowledge is wisdom, right? So you gain knowledge and then wisdom comes and you apply that to every aspect of life. But here's what's happened in the West. Again, this is the air we breathe. And this is why it might be tough for us to just sit and really understand what's happened in the next few chapters. In the West, during the scientific revolution, there was a guy named Francis Bacon, okay? And he said something, and it's, and it's hard for me to say, but I want to say it anyway. I'm very asked, why are you going to say it? I said, I just like to say it. It says, scientia potestas est. Knowledge is power. So in the scientific revolution, there was this, this transformation from virtue and wisdom and the application of truth and knowledge towards how it cares for the other to now knowledge is power. And that's the air we've been breathing for the last 400 years. Knowledge is power. And so the more you know, the more powerful you can be the more we know as a community and as a culture, the more power we can wield. And this has had a trickle-down effect in relationship, in our engagement with God, our engagement with people. I mean, on and on and on. Um, one, of the one of the correlations to this, one of the, the uh, byproducts of this is that um, when we don't know something, we tend to lie about it. Right? So, okay, so if knowledge is power, and this is the air we breathe, then when someone comes to us and, and challenges our knowledge on something, we freak out, right? We're like, no, you know, and then we try and wiggle our way to pretend that we know more than we actually do. We even pretend to know more about things than we actually do. So, a couple examples. When I was in college, there was a movie called Garden State. Has anyone ever seen that? Okay? I hated it. Now, here's the truth, though. That movie was like the cool movie to like, right? That if, if you were like a cool guy or a cool girl in college, you said that you liked Garden State, okay? Now, I was sitting in class one day. It was the first day of class, and they're going around the room. They say, hey, uh, say your name, your major, and what your favorite movie is. The two guys next to me say, Garden State, favorite movie. In discussion with them later on in the year, I find out they had never even seen it, okay? Never even seen the movie but yeah, it's my favorite. Love it. Love it. Can quote it. See, uh, how about this? I moved to California from Louisiana. And so in Louisiana, all we listen to is country music uh, and bluegrass. And, and so I grew up listening to this stuff. I moved to California where you get made fun of for listening to any of that. Um, and so then I get there and then a guy comes up to me and says, what's your favorite band? And I knew it. I was like, okay, I could say John Michael Montgomery right now but I don't want to get punched, right? So instead I said, the, you know, if you guys remember the patches that would go on the backpacks back in the day, the STP and corn patches, or is that, do you guys remember that or are you guys too young? Some of you guys, right? Corn and STP, so you would put those on the backpack. You're like, okay, I'm cool, metal militia, whatever. And so you got all these things going on. And so he says, what's your favorite band? I was like, dude, corn, STP, man, absolutely, all day, all day, all day, right? And so he says, so he's like, he goes, oh, man, what's your favorite song? It's like, they're all good, bro. Like, seriously, every, everyone is equally good. 
in my eyes all day, right? And so what has happened as a byproduct of the culture we live in is that we can't just approach knowledge with just, okay, teach me, right? We, we don't approach knowledge with a humble heart anymore. We don't approach learning with a humble heart. Okay, I don't, I don't know everything, so just teach me. Instead, we walk in this, okay, either I have to know it, and if people think I don't, I'm going to lie about it, okay? Or, okay, I better figure it out because I need to lord it over everybody else. I want the heart of Paul. I want the heart of God here as we approach deep truths. And then we would just be open and humble to say, teach me, right? Teach me. God, what, what do you have for us? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rely on your scriptures. I'm going to rely on your truth. And whatever you have, that's what I want. I don't want a false version. Of it. I don't want my own version of it. God, what do you have for us? That's what I want. May we be that. May we be those people. May we be those Christians. May we be that church who just says, God, like, teach us. Teach us, God. And, and I would even say this. Man, even as I come into, the, in, into chapter 9, and I've been, uh, I mean, for, for years now trying to study this text and other texts surrounding it, if I've gotten into this, the truth is, man, I approach preaching over the next few weeks with the same heart. God, man, if I've just missed it for the last, like, four years, like, let me know. Maybe there's something here that I'm not getting. May we all have that, that same heart, okay? Um, so here we go. What is actually eating Paul here? Why the raw emotion? Verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Okay. So just context here, Paul, we know is, is kind of going right towards salvation, towards the bringing. Because he's like, man, if it were up to me, if I were making the choices, if I were making the decisions, might I be cut off from God that all of my kinsmen might be brought in, right? Might I be separated from my Savior that the rest of my people who do not know him might know him and be saved? Again, man, I plead and pray for Paul's heart as we look at the world, right? Listen, if you're here and you're a Christian, I don't know all your stories. Maybe some of you guys are here and you're just visiting, you're just checking it out. It's great, welcome. But if you're here and a Christian, man, the posture that we are to take as we see a world that does not know Christ, and I pray, I pray Paul's heart for us. God, would I have such a love for the city of Flagstaff? Would I have such a love for my roommate? Would I have such a love for my classmates? Would I have such a love for the people I work with? Would I have such love for my family members that don't know Jesus? Would I be moved so deeply, deep down, that at the end of the day, man, I would say, God, take them and not me. I mean, I mean, take, take them and not me. And I tell you, there's maybe one or two relationships in the whole world in my life that I can even maybe think about doing that. Paul's talking about guys that are persecuting him. Isn't that crazy? Like maybe we can think of, maybe, maybe when I said that, a couple of you guys were like, yeah, no, I do that for my wife. Like if, if that was the equation, if that was a situation where, listen, I knew, I knew Christ, my wife did it, but man, I was so moved by love for her that, yeah, no, I would lay my life down that she would be brought in. 
Maybe, maybe it's a son, maybe it's a daughter, maybe, maybe there's someone that's that close to you. But man, Paul said, no man, I would lay down my life, my relationship with God. I would cut myself off from the tree if my people who are even persecuting us right now, would they be brought in? May we have the heart of Paul as we delve into this. As I, as I think about as we move towards Easter, and the opportunity for, man, across our city and all like 50 churches in our city that I just, man, I pray that it's wall to wall packed with people who need to know good news. The people that, that need to know, listen, no, this, these promises are true and they can be true for you. Okay. Well, we have the heart of Paul as we continue through this text and as we look at our city wherever we may reside. Verse four, they are Israelites, okay? And this, we've already kind of talked, but and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. They are the promised covenant people of God. They are Israel. Right, that's the subject. That's who we're talking. We already kind of talked about it. But listen, God chosen, and throughout history, He's given them these things. Listen, adoption is God's chosen people. Talked about in chapter eight about us. Glory as His representatives in the world. We talked about that in Romans eight, how it's entitled to us now. The covenants, how we engage in a new covenant. We talked about in chapter eight. The law of God and enlightenment and worship of the one true God. All given to the people of God, given to Israel. Paul running through their resume. And I think he does it. He runs through the whole resume of what God did with Israel to get to the final gift. The final gift in this list in verse five. Jesus. Right? That God, in the, like he chooses a people for himself and he gives them promise after promise after promise. There's someone who's coming. There's a Messiah who's en route Jesus, the Messiah, he's coming. Look out for him. All of those given to Israel. And here's the truth. Jesus was given to them as well. But they missed him. But they missed Jesus. Both when he was here, right? When he was here for 33 years, and then even today, they've missed him. The Jews walk in their promises. They become so, it, it, this is scripturally, in the Bible, right? The Jews, ha, it, it, at, at the time of Christ, have become so focused on knowledge, so focused on, okay, I think it should look like this. This is my experience. This is what I want to see happen. So the Jews all thought their Messiah would come and he would wreck shop on the Roman, uh, on, on the Roman Empire, subvert it, and then all of a sudden the Jewish people would be on top again. They had a thought in their minds about what this should look like. They interpreted it. They proclaimed it. And then when God came in and did something different, they rejected him. Might we again have the heart of humility to say, not what I want to see happen, not what I want to be true, but God, what are you doing and what have you done? Might we not be blinded? Might we not miss it? Might we not miss what God's trying to communicate to us over the next three chapters? Might we not miss Jesus? Even today, 
Jew and Gentile, everyone in this world, we, we are surrounded with people who miss Jesus. They get promise, they get joy, they get goodness, they get a lot of the gifts of this world, but they think it's about them and not about Jesus. Might we engage, pray for, and move into our culture that we would make it impossible for them to miss Jesus? And we're going to see more and more as Paul gets into some, you know, how beautiful are the feet of those who carry the gospel. I mean, that's just right around the corner. I love that. The question for us today, first for those in here who might just be visiting, and listen, you're, you're not a Christian. You're here, you're just visiting. Okay. Or you come every week and you just haven't, you don't believe yet. I just want to ask you, like, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of your life, in the midst of the things you see around you, why have you missed Jesus? Of all the gifts that you've received, of all the promises that have been made, don't miss out on the greatest gift of all. Don't miss out on the greatest gift this world was given, the greatest gift Israel was given, and the greatest gift this world has been given, Christ himself, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Come to him, know him, and call him Lord. Now for those of us in the room that were Christians, we love Jesus this is more practical in the sense that I think as we walk through our day, I mean, we're just, whether we're sleeping or we're awake, we're at work, we're in class, or we're here, I mean, oftentimes we just miss Jesus, right? That, that we kind of move Christ off into this little bubble sector of our life that happens on Sunday mornings from 10 to 11.30, maybe Wednesday nights from 7 to 8.30, and maybe 15 minutes a morning for a quick prayer and devotion time. That's God time, that's Jesus time, but the rest of my life, that's for me. Might we see that theology, might we see that doctrine, might we see that the Bible, might we see that what God wants is a relationship, engagement, 24-7, every aspect of life. Would we not miss Jesus? Would you not miss the implications of what it means to know Jesus as you work? Wherever you work. Listen, if you're a police officer, okay? If you're a, a PT, if you're a student, if you're a barista, okay? If you're a dental hygienist, whatever you do, would you see the implications of what it means to know Jesus? All of life apply who he is and what he's done. Okay, those are the two things. I'm excited. Let me just say, I, I was, uh, when, we first, when we first announced, and this is, you know, going back like over a year, that we were going to start doing Romans. And as, a sta as elders at all our congregations, we got together, we said, oh, what book do we want to do? And, and, and there, were, there were some softballs that we just like, yeah, let's do this. That's a Philippian, sounds fantastic, right? I mean, it's all encouraging, all great, love it, okay? There were, there were just some total softballs in there. And then, and then someone's like, well, let's do Romans and let's take two years, you know, like, that's awful. <laughs> but as we approach this text, it's, it's kind of here, and it's something that we've kind of been talking about um, across, the, across the congregations amongst the pastors, just, man, what, what, what angle are we going with this? What do we want to communicate? How do we communicate truth and grace and love mixed with, like, what God's doing and what we don't want him to do, but all that stuff, man, it is, I'm excited I really am. I hope, I hope you guys, man, I hope you're here and you're engaged and you're humble and you say, God, teach me, right? Teach me because here's the truth. Regardless of whether or not we like 
what he does, it is good for us. Okay? Regardless of whether or not we like it, it is good for us that he does it because he is good and sovereign and his character never changes. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for grace. Again, Lord, we are just, we're insufficient in and of ourselves to, I don't know, almost really do anything right. Lord, let alone just um, be able to be um, humble. We are a proud people. I'm a proud guy. I get in my own way all the time, Lord, when I know you want to teach me. God, I just pray for us today, as we just intro today, for what you want to do over the next two to three months, Lord, I, I just pray for your movement. I pray for your grace upon us, for everyone here. And if, God, even if, if there's people here that don't come here and they're just they're going to go home, I, just, I pray, Lord, that you move in their hearts. You allow them to just be conformed to your image. God, that we'd all just be humbled before you. God, that we have open hands and say, just teach us, Lord. And, and that's just something that on our own strength, that'll probably last like two or three weeks. And so, Lord, we rely on your gospel. We rely on your Holy Spirit and your truth. God, to be able to sustain us. So Lord, bless us now as we respond. Lord, as we just reflect and as we sing. God, would you be glorified. God, with the truths about who you are and what you've done to accomplish what you've accomplished. God, what you've done to secure the promises that we celebrated just over the last couple months. God, would you just magnify those now? And would you make much of yourself? In your name we pray, amen.